Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can open your Bibles this morning to the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Bible. And we'll be reading from chapter 6 today, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Just a few announcements that I want to make before we get into the text today. I just want to remind you again about some events that are coming up. Uh, First of all, uh, this coming weekend, the Porn Kills Conference is uh, going to take place here at New Life in this sanctuary. So it'll be Friday night, 6 to 9 p.m. And Saturday night, take note of that, if you've come in the past, we've typically gone Saturday morning, but this year it'll be Saturday evening, 6 to 9 p.m. So this conference is for uh, anybody who has been struggling with this issue of pornography, but it also is for people who know people who are struggling with this issue and want to be a help to those people, want to be a good friend to those people. Uh, It's also for parents who are wanting to know how they can instruct and care for their children, knowing that our children are being exposed to this um, plague on our society at younger and younger ages. Uh, We've been doing this for, I don't know, five or six years now. Uh, Very important conference. Many people report that they've been greatly helped by this. Please come. Uh, you know, I know some of you might be thinking, well, if I come, it's going to show everybody that I have a problem. Don't, don't worry about that. Not everybody who comes has a problem with this. Some are just wanting to know what the issue is. Um, it's extremely valuable. This is something people don't like to talk about. They're embarrassed by it, but it's killing people. And so you need to be here. Uh, tell your friends about it. Spread the word. It's free of charge. Um, And it's a very fruitful, effective, helpful conference. So that's this coming weekend, Porn Kills Conference, right here in this room. Secondly, the next weekend, um, there is a men's conference coming up. This is an interdenominational men's conference called Unashamed that will be held at Muncie Alliance Church. And this is uh, Friday night, Saturday morning. And I'll be delivering one of the addresses at this conference on Saturday. Um, and so we're really looking forward to getting men together from all of these various evangelical churches in our community uh, to talk about what God has to say to the men here in Muncie, Yorktown. So um, cost is $12, and uh, there's more information out at the uh, Welcome Center, a flyer there. So guys, uh, would love to have you there, and again, spread the word about this. And then the last thing is, I'm really excited to report that on December 2nd, Sunday night, we're going to have our very first joint service among uh, the three PCA churches here in Delaware County. That is Westminster Presbyterian Church in Muncie, who planted New Life about 25 or so years ago, and City Hope Fellowship, which is the church that we planted last summer. And so we're going to get all three churches together in this place, in this sanctuary, uh, to enjoy a worship service together on Sunday night, December 2nd. So each of the senior pastors, Chris, myself, and Josh, will be giving a short little message, and we're going to have musicians from each of the churches um, playing music for us and leading us in in worship. So uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. I can't believe we've... uh, 
waited so long to do this. Uh, well, City Hope's only a year old, but Westminster and us have been talking for a long while, and I think actually Westminster and New Life years ago did have some joint services, so it's a high time we resume this. So um, no life groups on that night, so I've asked all the life groups to make sure you're all free on that evening so that you can come here um, and worship. Again, this is not Sunday morning, it's Sunday evening, December 2nd. I don't know that we have a time yet, I think it might be 6.30 or so, but we'll let you know. So set that evening aside. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we are um, in our Route 66 sermon series. Uh, Some of you uh, might know the name Newt Rockney. He is the subject of one of the most famous sports stories, although this goes goes way, way back, but Newt Rockney was the coach of Notre Dame football team, and he had a player on his team named George Gipp. George Gipp was sick with pneumonia, and uh, as the story goes, Newt Rockney went to talk to George Gipp as he was lying basically on his deathbed, and George Gipp says to his coach, he says, sometime, Rock, when the team is up against it, when things are wrong and the brakes are beating the boys, ask them to go in there with all they've got and win just one for the Gipper. (laughs) One for the Gipper. It's been kind of known as a cliche in sports culture in America, picked up by President Reagan. Win one for the Gipper. Well, as the story goes, Newt Rockney went back and told that story to his team, and it inspired his team, Notre Dame, to beat uh, undefeated army in kind of a shocking upset at at the time and a lot of people credit this inspiring story shared by his coach to his team uh, for that victory. Now this is something I think we can all identify with and that is that we all need to be inspired sometimes. You know we all love to hear an inspiring word particularly when we're facing various obstacles and challenges or as we're about to enter into uncharted territory. What really helps is an inspiring word and many times when teams overcome obstacles and win games they shouldn't win very often they give credit to a coach who comes along and says just the right thing at just the right time to prepare the team for the obstacle ahead. Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, it is game time for Israel because they are at the Jordan River and they are just about to enter into the promised land and what they need to take this next step is an inspiring word from an effective leader and that's exactly what Moses does and that's what the book of Deuteronomy is about. It is basically a pep talk from Moses to the people, getting them ready to enter the land. More accurately, it's a sermon. The book of Deuteronomy is one sermon given by Moses to his people as they get ready to enter the promised land. So some background information on Deuteronomy. Moses, again, like the first four books of the Bible we've already covered, authored by Moses, written sometime between 1446 and 1406 B.C. Again, just like the previous books, some significant events in Deuteronomy, a repeat of the Ten Commandments, uh, various uh, laws repeated, the death of Moses, and Joshua being commissioned then to 
uh, lead the people into, into the land. <clears throat> Various themes, covenant becomes a theme, uh, taking the land, blessings, and curses. Uh, you might wonder what does the word Deuteronomy mean? It's kind of an odd word. All it means is second law. Second law. Not that God is giving a separate different law, but that the law that God has already given is being given again. So much of what we read in Deuteronomy is a repeat of what we have read in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But Deuteronomy becomes a very important book. It is the third most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. So very often referred to, and there is much in this book to inspire us as God's people today. So uh, again, we are going through um, the entire Bible in this sermon series. We're calling Route 66. Uh, I'm seeking to deliver one sermon per Bible book from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, we are here in the book of Deuteronomy. So let me review for you where we have been so far. Very quick review. Uh, again, uh, what we're looking at is the story that we get in the Bible. The Bible is a story from start to finish. The story started with this creation of this beautiful, wonderful, glorious universe. Then we saw the fall of Adam and Eve uh, that brought sin into the world. And then we saw God promise that he was going to send a descendant, a Messiah, who was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And God then went to Abraham and told Abraham that from him this nation was going to come and from this nation the Messiah would come. But then he indicated that this nation would have a particular land. So a big part of these first several books of the Old Testament is God leading his people into this promised land that goes all the way back to that first promise in Genesis chapter 12. So I showed you this map last week. And so uh, you might remember that Israel became enslaved in Egypt. And so this is Egypt here, an area inside Egypt called Goshen. And so here's where Israel was enslaved. The book of Exodus tells us that God miraculously delivered his people through the Red Sea. And so they began to travel and they came down to Mount Sinai. And that uh, is where God, uh, excuse me, Moses went up on the mountain. He received the law of God from uh, God. And that's where the tabernacle was set up, right at Mount Sinai. And the tabernacle is where the sacrificial system took place. And we learned about that sacrificial system in, um, well, now what do we do? Did I turn that off? I don't think I can turn this off with this. Okay, very good. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so the sacrificial system set up at Mount Sinai in Leviticus. Well, after that, the people set out and they began to head toward the promised land, moving through the wilderness. You see these words wilderness here. This is kind of the wilderness area. In the book of Numbers then, um, Israel camps in the wilderness of Paran, and so that's what we heard about last week. But now, Israel has made it all the way up to right here. And this is where Deuteronomy, or the events of Deuteronomy, take place. Uh, this river right here is the Jordan River, and this is the promised land, or the land of Canaan, which will eventually become called Israel. And so God's people are right here, and they're getting ready to go across this river and into the promised land. 
And so it's a huge step for Israel. I mean, it's a scary thing, too, because as we read last week, there's all kinds of obstacles and big people and all sorts of other nations uh, in the promised land that are very intimidating to the people. And so Moses steps up to give them this pep talk. So we're going to pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you want to please stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. It's kind of a central part in this book. Um, <clears throat> Ten Commandments were just given again in chapter 5, and so that's kind of the context here. Uh, and so w- what Moses tells the people here is not what the Gipper said, go in with all that you've got, uh, nor does he say something a more modern-day equivalent, like believe in yourself and everything will be okay. No, no here's, here's what God says, Deuteronomy 6. Now, this is the commandment the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you were going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Father, by your Spirit, open our heart and open our minds to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I hope it doesn't leak in here. It's been known to leak, so you might get your umbrellas out. All right, so three things here that I want to show you that uh, Moses says to his people as they get ready to enter the promised land. The first one is this, teach what God has said. I mean, these things I think maybe are a little contrary to what we might expect Uh, to be kind of an inspiring message, but this is what the Word says. Look at verse 1 in chapter 6. Moses says this, This is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that your God commanded me to teach you. This is what God wants for his people as they get ready to go into the land. He wants this people to be taught God gave the law to Moses and then commanded Moses then to give that law to the people, and that's how this chapter is beginning. Now, we might ask a question, why is this so important? And the reason 
is given to us here in verse 3. Look what he says. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that is, these statutes and these rules and these commands, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, it says. Very end of verse 2, something similar. These commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Now, when we read these words, statutes, rules, commands, I mean, very often these things can immediately uh, bring us down a little bit. They can be kind of discouraging when we think of rules and requirements and commands to obey. We often look at God's law as if it's given to restrict our freedom and hold us down and heap guilt upon us. But what does it say here? Moses is saying that you need to obey the law of God that it may go well with you. That is, that your life may be fruitful. You you should submit your life to the laws of God because this is the way to live the good life. That's what Moses is saying. So contrary to the way we normally think of God's commands and laws. Here's what a guy named Christopher Wright said. The law was given for people's sake, not for God's sake. Of course, it is true that our obedience makes God happy, but the purpose of the law was not to make him happy, but us. Have you ever thought of the law of God as being intended for your happiness, for your joy, for your reward, and for your fulfillment, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you? That's what Moses is telling his people. The law of God is a good thing that we ought to love as God's people. So that's the first thing. That's why it's important to obey God's law. But then the next question I want to ask is when should the word be taught? When should God's people be teaching it? And the answer to that is basically all the time. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them. When? When you sit down for dinner at the table When you walk by the way on the Cardinal Greenway or down on the path near the river, when you go to bed, when you wake up, when your iPhone alarm goes off and you arise, from breakfast to bedtime, God says, you should be thinking about, talking about, and teaching the words of God. Now, and notice here the implication here that teaching the word is not just something for educated clergy and pastors, nor is it something just to happen on Sundays. But apparently, according to this verse, the teaching of the word of God is for ordinary people in the ongoing, routine, daily functions of our everyday life. Now, of course, there are other things we need to talk about. Don't take me completely literally when I say that we should be talking about the Word of God all the time. Certainly, we have to be talking about other things. But let me ask you, friends, is there talk of the Word of God in your household? Do you talk about it over dinner? Do you talk about it after you've watched a movie together? Do you take the Word of God and apply it to the trouble that just happened to you in school and at work? Is there discussion? I mean, you're talking about sports at home. You're talking about politics 
at home, aren't you? Are you talking about the Word of God? If not, why not? I mean, if this is the thing we love and value, it ought to be spilling out of our mouths, and that's what we see commanded here. Teach what God has said. Why? Because it will be good for us. When? All the time. But then the third thing is who should be taught. And very specifically what this passage says is that children should be taught. Verse 7, the very beginning of verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. So, I'm going to be speaking to parents here mostly. I know not everybody is a parent, and some people uh, are empty nesters, and so kids aren't at home anymore. But uh, this is very important for Christian parents to be teaching their children the Word of God. Sometimes I hear parents say things like, well, you know, I don't want to push them too hard. You know, I don't want to brainwash my kids. I want them to make the decision on their own, and so I don't want to talk too much about the gospel and about the Word of God. Sometimes I hear parents say that. Now, of course, it's true that we want our children to own their faith and to believe because they really believe, not because their parents told them to believe. That's very true. But friends, parents, if you don't teach your children, somebody else will. There's a whole culture out there teaching things making statements about what is true, and your kids are hearing these things all the time. If you don't teach your children, their friends will. Their teachers at school will. The videos they see on YouTube will. Eventually, Lady Gaga will, and Jimmy Kimmel will. And Saturday Night Live will. And Oprah Winfrey will. They're all going to be teaching your kids. Your kids are going to hear what they have to say. They are in that culture all the time. Parents, it's so important that you be teachers of your children while you have the opportunity. While they are in your house reading the word to them, telling them about the gospel, calling them to faith and dispelling the false ideas that they are imbibing in the world. Parents, that's your responsibility. There was a study recently at Oxford in in England where um, various objects were set before children and the children were asked to say where they thought these things came from. And they had some American children, and they also had some Japanese children. And the reason they chose the children from Japan is because they wanted to include children from a culture where belief in God was not encouraged. And yet when these things were set before these Japanese children and the question was posed to them, where do these things come from, the most common answer from the Japanese children was kamisama. God did it. God did it. Even these children who hadn't been taught that there was a God seemed to have this hardwired instinctive reaction that God is the one who has created all things. Because children are ripe for that. They're ready to learn and they are open to the things of God. Here, Uh, is a guy named Mark Lilla who said this, to most humans, curiosity about higher things comes naturally. And that's particularly true of children. 
It's indifference to them that must be learned. Indifference to higher things. Unbelief, this kind of idea that God is irrelevant, that's the kind of thing that our culture is teaching and that your children will hear unless you get in there before the culture does and take advantage of this time when this curiosity of higher things is a natural propensity for our children. Friends, there's just a lot of ways that you can deal with this. Um, we have discipleship classes here, as I think most of you know, at 9 a.m. Uh, parents, send your children to these classes. Make, make sure they are there. We, we have two people on staff here that we pay to teach our youth. Andrew Brown, Jessica Mowry. I mean, that's how much we value the teaching of the youth of our church. If you have questions about how to teach your kids, whether they're young children or junior high or senior high, uh, they would be delighted to help you. But let me emphasize that this teaching should begin at home. We want to help, but parents, it's primarily your responsibility. Here's just a simple way to get started. You've heard us talk a lot about this book. If you don't know where to begin as a parent and how to teach your child, Buy this book, Jesus, the Jesus Storybook Bible, and read it to your kids. And you are off to a great start. And as a result of reading that book, your children will be ahead of most adults in understanding what the Bible is about and what the gospel is about. But also, as has already been prayed for, there is a parenting conference coming up, a Paul Tripp parenting conference on November 16 and 17. It's going to be a video stream here in the sanctuary. Um, Paul Tripp is great and highly recommend that. And I think we have a sign-up sheet for that uh, outside. So that's the first thing. Teach what God has said. That's how Moses is inspiring the people. The second thing, though, is this. Believe who God is. Believe who God is. Look at verse 4. Excuse me. We have this statement. Very simple statement, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a fundamental statement of belief by the Israelite covenant community. It's called the Shema. Uh, Shema is the Hebrew word for hear that begins this verse. For... Uh, This is basically a little mini confession of faith for the Old Testament people of God. Like we do the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed here. Well, this was a short little confession of faith. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is an affirmation of what's called monotheism. So this is a way for God's people to declare that there is one God, not many gods, Polytheists believe there are many different gods. Monotheists believe there is one God. And so this verse 4 is a very explicit and deliberate statement of monotheism. So polytheists would believe, and it was very common at the time uh, that the Bible was written. We talked a little bit about this in the book of Genesis. Their belief was that there's a number of gods, a pantheon of gods, different gods over different territories and different regions of the created order. 
But what Moses says here is that is not true, that there is only one God. That's what is meant by this verse. It's talking about the uniqueness of the God of the Bible. The Lord is one. There is one God who has created all things. There is one God who owns all things in the universe. There is one God who has decreed all events. There is only one God who is the standard of all goodness and righteousness and truth. And there is only one God who is worthy of your worship and mine. That's what this verse means. There's not many gods. There's one God. And we see this spill over into verse 5. As a result of this, you shall then love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your might. There is no one else who deserves this kind of devotion and worship than the one true God on the pages of Scripture. Not the God of Islam, not the God of materialism and money, not the God of the United States of America, not the God of comfort, not the God of science, not the God of sports, not the God of Facebook, and not the God of self. None of those things deserves your full and complete devotion with all your heart, soul, and might. Only the one true God. And this is important for Israel to know because they're about to enter this promised land, remember? And you might recall from last week that Israel found out who was there in the promised land, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, all these different groups. And all of these different groups had their own gods. They were polytheists. They all worshiped their own individual god. And so what God is saying to them is, don't go after them. Look what he says in verse 14. We didn't read this in the original reading, but look, it's very clear. You shall not go after other gods, verse 14. So God is aware that when they go into the land, they're going to see these other gods. They're going to be kind of exotic maybe, or you know, they don't seem as repressive maybe, or who knows, you know, that they'll find something about these gods that interests them. You know, Baal is, I think, just, 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 just a, you know, Molech just meets my needs. And they'll they'll be interested. But here's what God says later in chapter 12. He says, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods. Don't even inquire about them. Don't even show any interest in them. Because you're going to be tempted to go after them and to devote yourself to them. The same is true today. And friends, this should sound very familiar. We live in a very pluralistic culture. Pluralism. That is the idea that there are many different gods and there are many different ways to God. But this truth that we are seeing here in Deuteronomy 6.4 is still true. There is still only one God. Only one who is worthy of your worship. And you are not to be intrigued by the God of Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism. Because they're false gods. Which is about the most unpopular thing you can say in this day and age. But that's what this passage is telling us. There is one God. Now what's really interesting here is that this word for one 
is not a word that refers to an absolute singularity. What I mean by that is, well, the best way to explain it is to think of Genesis 2.24 where it says uh, the man and the woman were joined together and they were one flesh. The word for one there, one flesh, is the same word that is used here in verse 4, the Lord is one. In other words, it's a word that is used when referring to marriage to refer to a union of two, man and woman. And we will find later on as the story goes forward, as we get into the New Testament, that this word for one when referring to God refers to a union of three, a trinity. We're going to learn that God is one, but he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God expressing himself in three persons. And yet it is still true, there is none besides him. And so that's why it's so important to read the story and see how the story unfolds. Because we're going to learn more detail later on that we're not getting early on. And the Trinity is one example of that. But this is very important for us to cling to, friends. Maybe you saw in, in the news here, the Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's ministry, did a study called The State of Theology. They've done this three times now. And they interview people in America and evangelicals to see what they believe theologically. And for the first time, a majority of evangelicals agreed with the statement, God accepts the worship of all religions. I didn't say the majority of Americans, the majority of evangelicals. Now, it's a slim majority. It's like 51%. Uh, but still, 51% of evangelicals agree with that statement. But if God is one and there is none beside him, that can't be true. Now, this is not to say that the people who worship other gods are bad people. It's not even to say that other religions are wrong all the way through. It's not to say that they should be discriminated against, and it certainly doesn't justify something like the awful thing that happened yesterday where someone goes into a synagogue and shoots a bunch of people and kills them. This doesn't justify any of that. But the truth remains. It's spoken here in Deuteronomy, and we see it again in even more explicit terms later in the New Testament. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only way to be reconciled to God, faith in what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. I know there are troubling implications of that. I know there are people of other religions that we love and respect. There are neighbors. We work with them. We love them. I, I'm not trying to cast any aspersions on them as people. I'm just saying this is what the Bible says. There's one God. There's only one. There's no way to get out from under it. And that's what Moses wanted his people to know as they were getting ready to go into the promised land. But the last thing is this. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Go forward to verses 10 to 12. <clears throat> These Israelites that are about to enter the land, and God says through Moses, he says, you know, here's what's going to happen when you get into this land. You're going to have these cities Verse 10, verse 11, that you're going to have these houses that are full of good things. You're going to have these cisterns, these vineyards. You're going to have all this food. You're going to live in these houses, and you're going to have your full stomach. 
And, and none of these things are anything that you did on your own. It's all by my goodness and it's all by my grace that you have all of this. That's what God is reminding them here of in verse 10 and 11. And then he warns and he says, but here's what's going to happen when you get all that good stuff. Verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord. When you get all those good things, you're going to forget me. You're going to forget that I gave those things to you. And most seriously, you're going to forget who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You're going to forget that I saved you, Israel. You're going to forget that I redeemed you and I delivered you, that you were in slavery. And by my grace, I came and I brought you out. And yet, when you get all these good things, you're going to forget because that's what prosperity does to people. It makes us complacent. It makes us comfortable. It makes us bored with God. We forget what he's done. We have everything we need. Our stomachs are full. Our houses are comfortable. We live in an exciting city. What do we need with the gospel? Thomas Carlyle said, for every 100 people who can stand, who can stand adversity, there might be one who can stand prosperity. It's Reformation Sunday. I got to quote Martin Luther, and here's what he says. This is the most dangerous trial of all when there is no trial. And everything goes well. For when a man is tempted to forget God, to become too bold, and to misuse times of prosperity. Have you forgotten what God has done for you, Christian? Are you bored with God? Your affections all dried up? You've been tuning in and out here today. All you want to do is go home and watch the Colts game. You're hungry. You're thinking of Burger King and McDonald's and Subway, Applebee's, because you want your stomachs to be full. Have you forgotten what God has done for you? The deliverance that we have enjoyed as Christians, friends, is much greater than the deliverance that is being spoken of here, delivery, freedom from the nation of Israel. We're talking about a much greater deliverance. Now, later in Deuteronomy 28, God will... We'll talk about all of these blessings. He says, I'm going to bless you if you do these things, Israel. And then he says, but if you don't do these things, I'm going to curse you. Here's all the blessings that will come from your obedience. Here's all the curses that will come from your disobedience. These are the covenant stipulations. This is what it is to be in covenant with God. And as we go through the story, we're going to see Israel over and over again. There's a lot more disobedience than there is obedience. And we see these people deserve the curse of God. And then we put ourselves in their place, and then we realize, I deserve the curse of God. And later in Deuteronomy chapter 21, there's this statement where it says, Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. It's a verse very easy to kind of just run right past. Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And then later in the New Testament, deeper into the story, we're reading the book of Galatians, and we find out that there was a man named Jesus Christ who was hung on a tree. Or we might say hung on a cross. And here's what Galatians says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
by becoming a curse for us, for it is written. Quoting from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was cursed for you and for me so that we could receive the blessings of God that we don't deserve. Most importantly, his forgiveness, his grace, his love, the promise of eternal life, adoption into his family, justification before his law, and the promise of a resurrected body when Jesus comes again. Jesus was cursed for you. You were delivered from death. You were delivered from your sin. Don't forget that. I don't want us to dry up in our hearts. We have so much to rejoice and so much to be glad in. The, the gospel is wonderful and prosperity will rob you of the joy of the gospel if you let it. If you want to be inspired, friends, teach what God has said and talk about it. Think about it. Believe who God is. There is no other than the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And remember what God has done for you. He has delivered you from the curse that you might be blessed now and forevermore. It's good news. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much for not holding our sins against us. Help us, Father, as we seek to be people who are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name.